Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Institute of Politics Forum at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. My name is Dutch Leonard, and I'm a professor here at the Kennedy School, uh, where I'm also co-director of the Program on Crisis Leadership with my colleague Arne Howitt, who is the other co-director, and I'm also a professor at Harvard Business School. Uh, I worry about leadership and strategy, and that's what we're going to be talking about tonight with a very distinguished uh, panel uh, who can help us to understand what happened in the Boston Marathon event of last year and what we need to learn from that going forward for this year and beyond. So uh, I just wanted to acknowledge we've got an amazing audience here uh, tonight uh, filled with many distinguished people, uh, but two people I particularly wanted to uh, welcome and ask you to join me in welcoming. Uh, first of all, General Frank Grass, who is the commanding general of the uh, U.S. National Guard Bureau, uh, which is sponsoring the executive program that we are currently doing on issues related to this is here with us, with us this evening. And also, <laughs> and also we're joined by Captain Tom Hudner, uh, retired U.S. Navy captain, uh, who is a Medal of Honor winner from the Korean conflict. So we're gathering today to talk about a terrible day in our city's and our nation's history. Uh, one year ago yesterday, as we're all aware, uh, there was a horrific attack at the Boston Marathon uh, near the finish line. We have to remember it was actually a relatively small and unsuccessful attack on its own terms. Uh, there were only low-power explosives. Uh, it was conducted by two murderous and untrained thugs with uh, terrorist aspirations. Uh, so we have to be prepared for the possibility of seeing other events uh, of this form or worse. Five days from now, we will again run the Boston Marathon uh, for the first time since that day. So we're all focused uh, on that event. Our community has gathered several times over the last year to talk about this, uh, to try to think about what the lessons were, how they can be applied both here and elsewhere in this kind of event and in others. Uh, and we're going to look more forward to more uh, of that again this evening. Uh, but first, let me uh, ask you to join me in looking at a clip of the first forum event that we did on the Boston Marathon bombing, uh, which took place last spring. Can we have the video, please? My name is Jamie Bergstein. I work in the admissions department here at the Kennedy School. Um, this is for Commissioner Davis. Um, it's not a question. I just. I just want to thank you. Um, I, I knew the format of how the forms worked and I knew I wanted to say something, I didn't really know what, and halfway through, I leaned over to my friend who went to the event with me and I said, I really want to thank Ed Davis for what he's done. And she said, you should totally do it. Um, I didn't expect it to be as big or as emotional um, 
as it was, but I, I went up and I waited and I was waiting. I waited a really long time and I kept thinking, I'm just going to sit down. They're not going to call me. And then Dean Elwood pointed to me and said, okay, you're the last question. And I thought, oh, great, we're going to end on this. And then Juliet Kayyem saw I was wearing the jacket. And at that point, I had finally calmed down. But then I said yes, and everyone started clapping. And then I got very emotional, but I knew I just... I just had to thank you for everything that you and your force did. Mm -hmm. Well, it meant a lot. You know, it was a, it was a big deal. And um, it's funny how these things, when you go through something like this, you don't, you don't really have a grasp on how it's going to hit you emotionally. You know, you start talking about something, and all of a sudden, uh, a flood of emotions will, will hit you. But. Um, but there was a lot of hugging that went on that week, <laughs> and mm -hmm. and I and I just uh, when when you were talking and it and it bothered you so much, I just thought that that was the right thing to do to just sort of, you know, console you a little bit and tr and try to yeah. let you know it was all right. Well, you know, when when something like this happens, it's really important to to review everything to make sure that you do, you know you're you're catching the things that could be improved, and. Um, I think the um, the Harvard report was very well taken. Uh, they did a they did a great job in pointing out some things that we need to uh, work on. Uh, but I don't think it should take away from the um, the great work of the men and women who are out there in the middle of all this. They they did an incredible job, and I, I'm I'm completely supportive of them. It's really important that we learn lessons, but it's also important to recognize uh, what they did to to put the city back together again. Uh, should we stand up and hug again? <laughs> I'm gonna hug you. One more hug. That's right. Forget luck. Thank you. I will. Really Thank you so much. Right. Thank you. In our forum a year ago, uh, when we gathered for the first time, now tonight we should hear uh, from Ed directly on the question of what the lessons are. Uh, but we also gathered substantially this same panel in September to talk about this uh, set of events. Over the, over the last year, uh, several colleagues here, Arne Howitt and Christine Cole and Phil Hyman at the law school, and I worked on a, a report about the Boston Marathon bombing, the, a main finding of which was an awful lot of things went very well on that horrible day. Uh, and that was not an accident. It took a lot of work to set that up ahead of time. And so the, we came to feel that the lessons are very important to learn and to carry forward. And given that a lot went very well, it begs an explanation. Why was that? Why was Boston able to be strong? Uh, and so that's what I hope we can explore a little bit further today and talk about how that's being applied this year, here, and elsewhere as uh, going forward. Uh, so to do that, we have an extraordinary panel uh, with us to take up uh, these questions. Uh, obviously, one of the things we're not going to talk about tonight is specific security arrangements that are being made in this year's marathon for obvious reasons. Uh, so we can't discuss these things in detail, but we can talk in general terms about what we've learned and how we're adapting. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask uh, each of the uh, panelists here to uh, say a few words about some of the main lessons that they've learned, and then we'll have a little bit of interaction among the panelists, and then we'll turn to your questions. So be thinking about what your questions might be as we go along. Secretary Cabral, I thought we might speak f uh, first with you. Uh, Secretary of Public Safety for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, Andrea Corbal, uh, oversees an enterprise which has 13 state public agencies responsible for law enforcement, corrections, and a whole range of homeland security uh, issues. 
she began in her service in uh, public safety in 1986 as a staff attorney in the Suffolk County Sheriff's Office, uh, then was a prosecutor, then assistant attorney general uh, in the Commonwealth. She became sheriff of Suffolk County in 2002 and was appointed the secretary of the Executive Office of Public Safety in January of 2013. So she's had a very wide range of different experience from the law enforcement side looking at public safety issues. But a number of the agencies that you oversee, uh, Secretary Cabral, uh, the Mass uh, Emergency Management uh, Administration, the State Police, the National Guard, and others, uh, were all very heavily involved in this event, uh, so, and, and as you were personally yourself. Uh, so what are some of the things that you and, tho and those agencies, from where you've been sitting and observing this and participating in it, uh, what are some of the things that you see us as having learned that we need to apply going forward? Well, I would say first that I think, and this is not necessarily uh, unique to the Executive Office of Public Safety and is more cultural within Massachusetts, but we started learning immediately. Hmm. I would say even within hours, some of us may have gone home the, the day after that Friday and slept for that day, but we started talking immediately about what it was that we wanted to do better. And we knew that we, you know, when you, talk, when you ask me about key lessons or key takeaways, while we felt that um, given the, uh, the nature, the circumstance of it and that we were literally going sort of minute to minute, gathering information, filtering out what was real and what wasn't or trying as best we could to filter out what was real and what wasn't, and coordinating at a level between state, federal, and local that we had not coordinated mm. uh, at, uh, in the past, we felt that we had shown great promise in how much we could uh, collaborate and information share in the future. But we knew that that was a, we had a, we could, there was a lot more we could do, but we had seen from that, from the bombing incident, just what was possible there. And so that our key takeaway uh, in public safety, and under public safety falls the Massachusetts Emergency Management um, Agency, uh, the National Guard, and the state police. Our key takeaway was um, how do we become uh, unified in our security planning, that that would always be the key, and it wasn't just going to be something for major events. It had to be, become the way we did business. Mm. Very good. Let's turn next to uh, General Scott Rice. Uh, Major General Rice is the Adjutant General of the Massachusetts National Guard, which means he's the commanding officer of the National Guard in Massachusetts. He was commissioned in 1980 uh, through the Reserve Officer Training Corps as a student at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Uh, he got his pilot's uh, badge and flew F-111s and A-10s. Uh, he is, among many other things, a commercial air airline pilot. And with colleagues in the Massachusetts National Guard, uh, he invented the Homeland Security Institute here that is the host for the course that we are doing, uh, something for which we are personally uh, and professionally grateful. Uh, he also mobilized numerous times over the course of his uh, career, uh, including uh, deployments to Bosnia, Kosovo, uh, Kuwait, and Iraq. So he brings a very wide range of experience to uh, the events and was very uh, deeply involved in the events of last year. Uh, so General Rice, as uh, Secretary Cabal just said, your organization was heavily involved in this and uh, worked at great length uh, during the, the time of the event. What are some of the things that you all saw happen and felt that you could uh, continue to improve on? Well, one of the things I, uh, I like to uh, teach and express to the force is uh, 
there is something about being in the right place at the right time that really helps. So uh, with our force of uh, almost 9,000 people uh, in the National Guard in Massachusetts that we have across the Commonwealth, uh, when there is events and pre-planning, we, we strategically position people in the right place and have them there and, and ready to assist. And really, our role in domestic ops as a National Guard is to support uh, all those local agencies uh, that respond, whether it be emergency management, whether it be state police, whether it be the commissioner of the Boston State Police, uh, even uh, Boston Athletic Association. And our job is to make sure that they're successful. And we really talk about that, we train to that, and then we use whatever skills we, we learn on the federal level and apply those to the local level to ensure that all of, our, uh, all of our community leaders are successful when they have a crisis and a response to, to uh, manage. Now, one of the keys to the very high level of performance that was exhibited during that horrible event was that you already had a lot of people on station and you had a command structure that was there ready in case more was needed and you were able to activate very quickly. Uh, has that been something you've been trying to figure out how to enhance over this period? Yeah, yes, in fact, uh, as, uh, as the Secretary talked about, uh, sharing information we can always do better because as we go through events, uh, the novelties of events are as no matter how much we train for, each event is, a, is unique in its own right. And so we, uh, we're always starving for in information, we're always trying to get the information at the right time and, and being better connected, better communicating across the full spectrum of uh, what our electronic means, whether it be uh, simple things like a cell phone or a text to very complex things like uh, shared situational awareness on a broad scale so we're all looking at the same thing. And we're working very diligently at that and, and I think we've become significantly better than we were even last year uh, as we are prepared for events that are coming up uh, like the marathon this coming Monday. Well, we're all hopeful of that and uh, looking forward to seeing the uh, results of that on, on Monday. Um, uh, Commissioner Davis, this all happened in your jurisdiction, or at least the first major events of it happened within your jurisdiction, and much of what came together in terms of the command structure was in effect hosted by you all, brought together by you all, uh, since you were the, the principal agency overseeing the event at, at the place where this, this actually took place. Um, uh, Ed, Ed Davis probably needs no introduction in this uh, uh, particular crowd, but let me just say uh, he has a long-term uh, career in law enforcement beginning in uh, Lowell, uh, which he joined in the police force in 1978, uh, rose through the ranks to become the superintendent of police there uh, in uh, 1994, and was the senior police officer there until 2006 when he was appointed commissioner uh, of uh, police in Boston. Uh, and brought then to this a, a very strong record of innovation within the police department, both in Lowell and in Boston, especially focused on community policing and developing uh, community relations. Um, Commissioner Davis, you probably in many respects as intensively as anybody lived your way through these events and must uh, have formulated thoughts both of what you were proud of and, and pleased about what happened and must have seen things that you also wanted to see improved. Uh, what do you see as some of the lessons that we can profit from and, and apply going forward? Well, I think first and foremost, Professor, was that uh, we did spend a lot of time planning. And um, we all knew each other, and we all had great respect for each other. Um, I don't think anybody was meeting anyone else in that command post for the very first time. Uh, we'd all worked together in preparing for things like uh, 
the Democratic National Convention in 2004, and every sports celebration that's happened here in Boston since then. We've had a chance to exercise these plans frequently, thankfully. Um, but one thing that strikes me after going through this is that the old military adage that no plan survives first contact with the enemy is, uh, is absolutely true. Um, the, the structure was in place. We use a national incident management system and uh, a command structure that, that is uh, laid out under, under those guidelines. And that formed a, uh, a platform or a, a framework that, that allowed us to uh, improvise in, in as we hit the encounters, that as we encountered the, the road bumps, or the, the bumps in the road, I should say, that, uh, that we hit uh, during the course of these investigations. And so uh, planning, preparation, practicing, all of those things played in an, uh, an enormously important role. But then relying on people in the field to do their job and do it properly um, was, the key, was the key to success here. Hmm. So uh, one of the things we talk about in this course is the challenge that, as you said, every, every event is different. And particularly, these really horrible events have all kinds of novel elements to it. So y in effect, you find yourself improvising. The plan doesn't work, but the framework within which you're improvising may, may help you. And that's right. what I think I'm hearing you all say in terms of your ability to come together as different agencies to, to do that. Right. Uh, General Rice is one of the first three or four people in the room uh, at the Western Hotel. And um, I'm confronted with locking down a 17-block area of the busiest financial district in New England. And so I'm figuring out with 2,200 offices, how am I going to do this for an extended period of time? The general stepped up and said, I have troops. I can bring them in. Um, and, I ca I said, and I said to him, how many? And he said, well, I can have 1,000 here by 5 o'clock. I said, that's a good start. <laughs> so, I never thought I'd find myself in that situation, but uh, we were thrust into the middle of this, and it was absolutely necessary. So I'll never forget the, uh, the work and, the, and, the, and that. That particular offer took an enormous off, uh, uh, problem off my plate. Well, let's turn finally to our, our last uh, but not least guest. Uh, Tom Grilk is the uh, executive director of the Boston Athletic Association. Uh, he became president of the, uh, of the Athletic Association Board of Governors in 2003 and was until 2011 and is the executive director. He's a lawyer by training. He lived in Japan uh, for a number of years and is himself a marathoner. Uh, his best time in the Boston Marathon is 2.54. Uh, so that suggests don't run with this guy. <laughs> uh, but uh, Tom, in many respects, you know, this is your event. Uh, this is a historic event that the Boston Athletic Association has famously been organizing for well over 100 years. Uh, so more than anyone else, you must feel the necessity for the challenge of balancing. Of course, we want to be safe, but we also want to have this continue to be, uh, as the governor said uh, in, a, in a statement uh, yesterday, uh, the governor said, we want to be safe, but we still want this to be a civic celebration and uh, a, a part of the free exercise of what we do. So how, how have you thought about what you learned from last year and, and gone forward to try to make sure that we get both parts of this? Well, I'm afraid my response will, at the core, be rather dull and simple. Uh, for us, in this very collective, collaborative exercise, our job is to do our job, uh, to make sure that we do our part in what is a very, very broadly shared enterprise across all manner of public safety agencies uh, and many others uh, in an event that in a, in a 
very real sense is emotionally owned by about three million people who live around here and a few hundred thousand runners who live around the world. So for us, we need to focus on what it is that we do best. Do that well and do it well, not simply because we owe it to the runners and the volunteers and the people who live around here, but because we owe it to our partners, particularly in the public safety and health arena, so that they have a predictable, well-known, well-understood stage upon which to operate and against which to make their plans. So among those challenges for us, particularly, are to have a medical setup that can meet any challenge, uh, which is why an important job of ours is to make sure that that medical tent A, the big white one in front of the Boston Public Library with 200 beds in it, is ready to go for whatever may happen, not to mention tent B, which is usually 80 beds, but it'll be another 200 this year because of what's going on. So our, our job is to put on the race, but also to make sure we support everyone else in all the ways we need to because it is the most shared of enterprises. Well, maybe I could ask each of our panelists to, to speak a little bit to this issue about uh, balancing. Balancing the security <coughs> concerns and the sense of celebration and the history and the wanting this to be a, uh, an event that, that shows us as we, as we want to be. Uh, this is a tension all of us feel in the society. Uh, a tension uh, we cannot celebrate and defend the American way of life by giving it up and surrendering it and cowering in fear uh, in the face of events like this. Um, so how do we strike that balance? And what I mean by that is not what, what exactly is the right balance to strike, but from a, a procedural perspective. What's the process through which we can deliberate about that and try to, to, to reset the balance, uh, to have a, a discussion that helps us to get it uh, better over time? I think that one of the, let me say it like this, one of the things that struck me was even though that was always our overarching goal, it was our, uh, we had events immediately following the marathon, um, a series of smaller events and the 4th of July on the Esplanade where we had to immediately, you know, put into place this sort of rethought security plan. And from the beginning, it was, articulated, but it was also simply understood that what we refuse to do is to take away um, the tone and the feeling of an event in sacrifice to security. That didn't mean that security would suffer, it just meant that it had to be less obvious, which is a challenge in and of itself, hmm. but really necessary to um, the psychological, uh, what what uh, Vice President Biden kept referring to yesterday is we not yielding um, to the desire of any individual, any group of individuals to take away from us the thing we treasure most. And that was, um, no matter who we were dealing with throughout this, whether it was state, local, or federal, everyone automatically understood it, but we also articulated it in all of our plans from the very beginning. That's how important it mm -hmm. was. It's one of the things I was the most proud of because it was the first thing we thought of. And while the balance itself, or achieving that balance, uh, can be a challenge, I will say this. We learned, we started learning immediately, so by the time we got to the, the fireworks last year on the Esplanade, I thought, and, and, and Ed, uh, you know, weigh in here if you think I'm wrong, I thought we had come a very long way in a very short time in terms of how we wanted to 
because the Esplanade is very challenging in terms of how you secure it. It's a lot of open area. And that we continue to learn, and we're now on the, on the eve of uh, this year's marathon, and I feel as though we have an unprecedented level of security, but that we have met the challenge to balance mm -hmm. it. Uh, we'll wait and we'll get the reviews from people who participate in the marathon and people who are spectators, but I think the fact that we had it as an uppermost concern and an overarching goal uh, in planning this security is going to be very apparent uh, to people. When people, if people ever get to the point where they realize exactly how much has gone into it, we might not ever tell anybody. <laughs> but I think we have a Boston, what I was trying to say is I just think we have a Boston common mentality. We have a Boston common for a reason. Come out of your house, come to the common, stand and be heard. We have, we encourage people to do that. We don't ever want to diminish um, their sense of freedom in doing that, so. And some of the things uh, to springboard on uh, what the secretary said about yesterday uh, was during the celebration, also the governor got up and talked, and he talked about community. This is an event, and also uh, Tom Grelick talked about that. This is an event that uh, doesn't break us apart, as, uh, as some terrorists would like to try to think that it does, and clamp down this uh, perception of martial law type security. But in fact, it's brought us together greater on community, and where we all realize that uh, as I sit, breathe, and raise my family in this community, I'm a much a part of this community as a citizen as I am in the military. And so it gives me uh, great hope and great strength of, uh, of looking to the future, because I know it's not just me, it's not just the police department, it's not this, just the state police or even emergency management that gets together, it's every single citizen in this community is a part of our solution to make this not only free, but secure at the same time. And you clearly saw that demonstrated in the response to the marathon last year where you have everything from people opening up their homes without even mm -hmm. thinking about it, to runners that are stopped before the end of the marathon, all the way to, hey, we need some help. Uh, let's send in some videos, pictures, and, and, we're, and we're inundated with stuff. So now we are very, very well connected across the full spectrum of, uh, of everything from you know uh, phone numbers to call, websites that put mm. up information on where to go, what to say, what to, what to do, see something, say something, all the way to our very, very extensive uh, social media that we have uh, well connected onto, uh, onto all spectrum. So it's pretty good whole of community approach to this is our land, this is our city, this is our marathon that represents not only our freedom, but that we take care of each other. So just to pick up on what General Rice is saying, one of the things we found in our research on this was increasingly as we went along, it was a story about the combination of what first responders did and what the community did. And it was really a whole of community response. And, and getting both halves of that turned out to be enormously important. And so what I'm hearing Secretary Cabral say is, well, if you want to keep the right balance, you have to start with remembering what the values are. And the value, and so it, it's almost as if you defined having the event as a celebratory event which reflects our free and open society, that's a constraint. And then you add security. And then you figure out how to do the security with it. Right. That's actually a very interesting way to think about it. Because part of what we teach about here is that what, what leadership is, is it's something that starts with values. And so that, that's uh, it's a very interesting characterization. Uh, Ed or Tom, other things that you would like to add to the to that? Uh, well, for for me, looking at that question uh, as a leadership issue, how do you achieve the right balance? Of course, in the first instance, it's public safety people that do it, but for us, just in what we do at the BAA, a, a, a rather frequent failure of mine, uh, 
is to try to institute a process before we really have a shared state of mind, whether it's values or whatever else it is. And it, unless, you have, unless you have a shared state of mind, it's hard to impose a process on anybody and vice versa. Um, and every time we face one of these things, I have to stop, get quiet, think about it, and remember that, because it's easy not to, for me. Yeah, two quick observations. Uh, one is that that balance is struck every time the police commissioner walks through the door uh, of the mayor's office uh, with the plan, uh, or the secretary of public safety walks into the governor's office with the plan. The, the great part of our system is that there's political oversight to, um, to our desire to tighten things down, and that balance occurs very naturally in that, in that system, so uh, it's helpful. The other thing to remember, too, is that that balance is based specifically on the landscape at that particular time. And so one report uh, from an intelligence agency, one developing situation anywhere, uh, can shift that balance dramatically and change the plan uh, very quickly. So part of the answer then also has to be that you have to be agile enough to be able to do that in the face of, of evolving of evolving information. Um, there may be other questions from the floor that will take us back to some of these issues. I'm going to pose one more question to the uh, panel here. So if you have a question that you would like to pose, we're about to turn to that from the floor. So if you want to come to the way we're going to do this is to come to these four mics. There are two on this floor and one in each of the alcove areas on the staircase. Uh, so if you're interested in asking a question, uh, you might start making your way there while I ask uh, the last question uh, of my own to this, to this group. One of the things that I think is going to characterize this event, and the more we think about it, the more we realize how many different wells of this there are, is that this is going to be a highly emotional running of the Boston Marathon. It's always a pretty emotional event. People have invested huge amounts of effort, and it's a huge big deal for them to, to do it. Uh, but this year, much more than usual. Uh, because you, you have survivors who are going to be there, some survivors who are running, you have some survivors who are spectators, you have people who are on teams running on behalf of people who were victims last year, very emotionally engaged in that. So, uh, and you have other, the runners who were stopped last year and who didn't get to finish and who now are going to be able to finish, they hope. So how, how do we allow for, adapt to, and uh, help people uh, in this context. How does that figure into um, Boston Strong and the, and the community coming together? Well, I, I do think that. Is it still up? Yeah. Okay. I do think that some of it is um, uh, intrinsic to what we were talking about about balance. But at the tribute event uh, yesterday, which was absolutely it lovely, it was a beautiful thing. It really was a beautiful thing, and it and it. Uh, went a long way, I think, for a lot of people. I think what we have to, as long as we keep in mind that not that this is not something that we put behind us, mm. this is something that we uh, reconcile with our resources and that we learn to live with, mm. but that especially for the people who were injured and the people who lost someone, we ought not to talk of it or think of it as something that we move forward from in the sense that it, it, it happened and it's in its little box and we don't have to worry mm. about it mm. because it is not true for them and, I, and I've spoken with um, folks in public health and other places who have spoken with uh, family members and people who are injured and they feel it a bit of a loss because the people around them in an effort to be comforting 
uh, and consoling, talk about moving on, and talk about it in a very complimentary way that people have overcome so much and shown so much courage. And many of them say, and all I want to do is scream, don't you realize right. what happened? And then we talk about how in law enforcement we suppress constantly how we feel about things because you have to get the job done. So while, while there may be a certain um, level of not necessarily having individual uh, insight for law enforcement or uh, progressing at a much slower pace if you're someone who was injured or deeply affected by it, I think that the, the best way that we can acknowledge the level of emotion is to say what it is mm. and, and be careful to avoid saying what it isn't mm. for all of the people who are affected and that when you hear that from law enforcement, when you hear it from leadership, when you hear it from the military, that we get it and we are making progress but we are not putting it behind us and we won't forget. I think that helps people um, a great deal but it's, that's, it's very tough to manage, I think, um, the emotion of this event. Um, security doesn't leave a lot of room for that. And so we try to still be mindful of it and how it affects people, even to the extent that we talk about what images we will use for things or what events we will participate in. We are mindful that there might be those who are deeply affected watching us mm -hmm. and the example that we need to mm. set there. So one of the things I think is so important about what you emphasize is that it's very heterogeneous. Uh, it's very diff different people have made uh, different levels of peace with what happened and, and so so it's not like it's one thing, it's, but it's, it's this multifaceted story. Uh, this must also be true, uh, Commissioner Davis, for law enforcement officials. Uh, many of your uh, frontline troops, and also true for you, uh, General Rice, saw terrible things that day and what must continue to be affected by that. And this will be a very emotional event for them too, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah, there's no question. It already has been uh, going through that ceremony yesterday with many of the people who responded. Um, We've been working really hard. The first day at the command post, we put together a special stress team that would deal with people who performed first aid on the, on the victims. And we thought that we had that box checked, but, but about a month later, I find out from the union that there were dozens, if not hundreds, more officers that had been adversely affected by this. Not just the people with hands on the victims, but, but other people who, uh, who had relatives that were in the, uh, in the race that might, might have been a wife running and the officer couldn't leave his post to see how she was doing. Uh, dozens of stories like that. So um, we teamed up with uh, Mass General and, and they gave us some additional resources that have been absolutely necessary over the last year to make this work. Well, one of the things is uh, the way we work together is, uh, is pretty impressive for me where I come from a very military environment on all my deployments that uh, you know, we voice our opinion, we talk to our leadership, and then the decision's made, and you salute smiling and follow the orders. In, uh, in a lot of this case, with all of the different uh, diversity of people that are in, in part of leadership, we, uh, I, I've seen a great empathy among people like Secretary Cabral, uh, Secretary Schwartz, the uh, Director of Emergency Management, and uh, Tom and the, and the Commissioner, how we all talk to each other, and the best thing is, we listen to each other. And I think the, uh, again, the governor coins this phrase for all of us that I really have, that, that represents that. And in an events like this, we don't turn on each other, we turn to each other. Mm -hmm. And that represents the fact, the simple fact, 
that we listen to each other, we talk to each other, and in fact, uh, I consider myself a, you know, a, a trained professional and very stable in these environments. And when I walked around the corner uh, minutes after the bomb went and saw some scenes there, I mean, it really shook me right down to, the, to my soul. And, uh, and, and I wasn't sure at that moment if I could function at that point. I mean, there was a tremendous amount of adrenaline going through my body realizing that this was a, this was a pretty serious event in my town, in my home city, in my, in my community. And uh, who should grab me on the shoulder? But Secretary Schwartz said, hey, wake up, let's go, we got work to do. And that was all it took. I mean, just him saying that to me, and then I could talk to him later about it, and, and we got together and we got out to the business of, hey, we're in this to take care of the community and see how we can move on and get to the right place. This is one of the things we found repeatedly in the research about this was that senior folks on the scene had this twin reaction. Uh, part of it was they wanted to plunge in and help at a hands-on level. And there was literally a story of one very senior uh, officer who was starting to do that, and someone from another department pulled him literally by the gun belt and said, that's not your job. Your job is to go with me and form a command post. And they did that. And so part of, I think, what Boston Strong on the responder side was, was strong about was having an infrastructure of relationships and practice of that, that you, you all felt that that was where you were needed, that that was your job description, and you did that. And that brought, began to bring some order to an otherwise chaotic, uh, chaotic process. And I think that really was a, a, a very important part of the backbone. And boy, we should not take that for granted, because that is not uh, a universally available asset in other, other communities. Uh, Tom, uh, your enterprise sponsors this event, your volunteers are out there by the thousands. They were affected by it last year. You'll have many of those back. And new volunteers who came for a whole variety, a host of different reasons, many of them emotionally engaged with, with the events of last year. So how have you been uh, responding to and, and coping with that? Well, focusing first on the volunteers, on April 16th last year, after focusing on runners, we began also focusing on volunteers and arranging counseling resources <coughs> through the Department of Public Health and the Commonwealth, through the public health uh, group in the city of Boston, from the Surgeon General's office in Washington, uh, all of that. Uh, and when I look at what we, <coughs> excuse me, confront this year, uh, it's striking the balance that, that you are describing. Uh, we have about 50,000 people who will be involved in events starting yesterday through the day of the, the marathon. And the only thing we know for sure is that there is no appropriate reaction, no correct response. Mm -hmm. They are individual mm -hmm. for everybody. So what we have tried to construct is a series of events in which people can experience those emotions and that reaction in whatever, they, in whatever way they want, whether it was yesterday's 2,500 people in a room for the tribute event or an increased field of 10,000 people in our five-kilometer race so people can get out and do something physical or the one-mile event that will follow that for members of the One Fund community so that their expression can be physical and personal but within a reasonable realm. For people running the marathon, they'll react as they react. We will continue to provide hydration stations every mile, but this year there'll be a counselor at every one of those. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, let's, let's go to your questions. Uh, we have a tradition in the Kennedy School Institute of Politics Forum, which is that we always have open mics and uh, the speakers are asked to respond to questions. And here, let, let me define what a question is. A uh, question begins by having the questioner identify him or herself uh, to tell us who they are. 
and then a, a question is a brief statement, and it has a question mark at the end. <laughs> and uh, there's only one of them. Uh, so please, we'll go first to this. Uh, to this Hi, part. thank you. My name is Wilpoff Webster. I'm a senior at the college, but I'm also a lifelong resident of Boston. So more from that second affiliation. Thank you for everything all of you do. One of the things that was so interesting to me about the marathon last year was the way it brought together the surrounding metropolitan community. And even though I'm from the city, it really became something that involved people from the suburbs and, and everywhere else. And I'm wondering, obviously that's a big strength, but it's also, I think, a challenge with you all representing different agencies and different jurisdictions. I'm wondering if you could speak to how you work across those differences, uh, different levels of command, and, and sort of where the buck stops there, how, how that uh, challenge is met. And then secondly, um, I know there was a lot of citizen participation, both positive and at least in my view, negative people trying to figure out who the suspects <laughs> were on the internet. Um, and I'm wondering if you could speak to what the role of government is in positively engaging citizens and not sort of letting things run wild. Thank you. Uh, sure. Um, so on the <laughs> <laughs> you, this kid's from Harvard. Uh, on, on the issue of, uh, of uh, multiplicity of uh, jurisdictions arriving, there's a concept in our business on the police side called mutual aid. And um, th there are, there's a law that, that talks about how it works, and we're all very familiar with that. Um, we also, after 9-11, have all learned that um, people that you don't request are going to flood into an area like this. And so um, I, I did some work uh, at the, at the uh, towers uh, in, in the weeks after 9-11. I spoke to a, one particular sergeant uh, from right in that district, who had been assigned to deal with officers who were just self-reporting. And so they had set up a special command area near uh, the, the uh, United Nations to deal with these officers that were coming in. Because of that experience, we did the same thing here. We, we set up the Boston Common as a catchment uh, place for anybody who was self-reporting. And then we sent uh, uh, bosses from Boston into that area to take groups of officers as needed to secure critical infrastructure within the first hour of the incident. We wanted to make sure that any potential further threats were covered. And so um, that worked out very well. And, and um, th there's um, an enormous amount of, uh, of uh, importance to having people there that can handle it, the problem and um, to have them structured in the right way, to, ma to make sure that there's a command structure in place. Um, in Watertown, that broke down a little bit uh, in the first hour or so. Hundreds and hundreds of officers uh, who had been working on the Collier homicide and, and quite frankly from the Boston Police Department just ripped across the river when the shooting started and, and jumped into the fray. And so this report uh, that, that Dutch and, and his colleagues have done um, talks about micro-command. So the uh, macro-command went pretty well. We all knew each other. We got into a command post and we did what we had to do. Um, since Columbine, policing has changed their, uh, their theory on how to deal with an armed suspect. And um, so now, instead of waiting for the SWAT team to come and surrounding the area, our, our officers are trained to put together a small group of officers and attack the position. Um, to do that, a lot of times the suspects are using long rifles. So we've armed up officers with long rifles. Um, and so some of the problems that came to light in Watertown were fields of fire, and in, in using, using automatic weapons on full auto in, in, a, in an urban environment, which, which has not been thought through enough since we've, we've given the officers the, the, the tools that they need to do the job, but there's not been a lot of training around uh, types of ambushes or the type of training that all the military uh, people here have. 
Our officers are trained on combat encounters within 10 feet uh, that last three or four seconds, and that's pretty much the focus of all our training. So clearly that training has to change. The, the, um, the structure of the command system at a, at, a, at a particular event where you've got five or six people from different locations uh, going in to, to attack a position, that all has to be uh, trained up better. Um, but overall, it, it, uh, it worked. And, uh, um, you know, there could have been, Dick Donahue is an example of how it didn't work, of how somebody can be injured in a situation like that. Uh, but, but by and large, it was, uh, it, 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 we got the bad guys. So for the number of cities and towns, there were, I think, six host uh, cities along the route. And they are local jurisdictions with local police departments, and many of them uh, do not have the capacity that is needed for the levels of security, heightened security that we have now. And this is one of the things that I think uh, in, in 28 years of, of uh, being in various positions in law enforcement, I have never seen uh, a level of cooperation and coordination such as I saw when we did uh, the tabletop exercise for the security. Now you have to exercise all of your plans and go through uh, multiple scenarios. And I'm watching um, local police departments uh, go outside with other local police departments and work with the state police and work with the fed, uh, federal um, law enforcement to say how do we solve this problem. So in cities and towns that don't have enough police to monitor the route as the plan lays out, they are supplemented by the state police, by the National Guard, and there's really, there really has been this enormous coming together to make sure that they have the resources that they need, but also the knowledge that it's not a one-time thing. If it hap we, are, we now know how to do it, so that if, we, if they're needed again, we can put those things in place. Um, to your point about citizens, I think that's just as delicate a balance as the earlier one we were talking about. You do not want to veer into vigilantism but you do. We live in a society where everyone has a phone that has a camera on it. Everyone has a phone that can record things at a moment's notice, and people have their, their five senses. People have an enormous amount of information <coughs> about an incident that they don't even realize is significant until you ask them to search their memory. So you want people to help, you want them to give you information, but you don't want them to jump to conclusions, nor do you want them to act on their own, and you just have to message that the right way, you have to reinforce that. And you still will get people that will fly off and do any one of a number of things um, that are uh, sort of unsavory, but uh, if leadership sets the tone for what is expected from the public, it tends to get back what it's asked for. Very good, now we have a terrific audience here, and, and one I happen to know is very knowledgeable, but it's not very curious, so feel free to approach the microphones. <laughs> Uh, th there are many other questions you can put to this group. And please, let's go to the microphone up here. Hi, uh, my name is Ben Bolger, and I'm a, a Harvard alum. Um, the governor did something quite extraordinary. He um, asked for a shelter in place uh, following the bombings. And uh, it was surprising and, and, and gratifying to know that most citizens uh, kind of ad adhere to the uh, request. Um, my question is, um, what have you learned from that experience? Um, how long? Um, would it be appropriate to have a shelter in place? Um, because actually it was lifted and then shortly thereafter um, one of the suspects was caught. Um, just what, are, what are your thoughts and reflections? Clearly we want to have a balance where we are able to uh, identify and, and capture uh, dangerous people, but we also want to find a balance of 
allowing people to go about their daily business, not let terrorism, uh, you know, disrupt people's days. So what, what, what are the lessons learned from that, that experience? Well, I think that what you ask people to do in, uh, in terms of things that will curtail their freedom has a great deal to do with the particulars of the incident. And I think the general spoke about the novelties of each situation. Um, last year, what we had was incredibly wide range of possibilities. It was not immediately apparent <coughs> to us how we should narrow it down. We didn't know who, therefore we had no sense of how big it was, whether or not it was limited to just, even if we had a who, was just them, is it someone else, and how coordinated are their efforts. So you sort of start, like every investigation, you start with a very large circle and you narrow and you narrow and you narrow as you separate out the things that are um, worthy of follow-up and those that aren't. And as you're able to narrow and become more sure, you make sure that you're monitoring every step of the way to the extent that you have curtailed someone's freedom in order to keep people safe while you're looking, that you give it back. And that, that can literally be a minute, almost a minute by minute calculation. The governor spent um, a great deal of time measuring that at every turn because he realized how extraordinary mm it is to ask people to stay in their homes, even for their own safety, because it also creates fear. If no one tells you to stay in your home because nothing's going on, they tell you to stay in your home because uh, something's going on. So, um, you know, amidst all of the pressures uh, to get it right and to identify the right people, again, the overarching goal was to make sure that, um, not a return to normalcy, but to not curtail freedom to the extent that we didn't we didn't feel like we needed to do that. But you know, you they always say it's it's good to be right. Luck plays a a role in that. And luck plays a role in every good outcome. And so you always hope that you have a little bit of that as well so that you're not making the wrong call. <laughs> Other uh, reactions or recollections or thoughts about the shelter in place and the, that request? Several of the people here were heavily involved in that actual decision, so. Right, well, we, we gave the governor and the mayor um, the best information we had at three o'clock in the morning. Uh, as, the, as the clock ticked closer to five in the commute hour, uh, they were faced with uh, the possibility of a cell that had gone active um, in, in three different locations that were uh, in play. Um, not only in Watertown, but three other locations outside of Watertown. And so um, I think they made the right decision. So one of the things I think that comes up out of that um, experience is to remember how early you have to decide. Uh, it was in the very, after, very immediate aftermath of the gun battle when there was still a lot of confusion about what is the nature of this event. And so we have to be careful not to look back with 20-20 hindsight. We now know that apparently there weren't other people involved and, and so forth and so on. But that's a hard thing to, to speculate about at that hour. The other thing, uh, just to draw attention, I, I think what's important about the, the reactions and is to notice who gets to make this decision and the fact that that decision was very appropriately formulated and given to elected political officials because this is the kind of decision that ought to be in their wheelhouse and uh, one of the issues that I think we need to work on that in incident management is largely silent on this question of which which issues go to politicians uh, it doesn't imagine that there would be any questions that would have to go to politicians. And so working out when, how you know which issues are appropriate for resolution at, at, in, of that kind 
uh, bringing electoral, uh, elected political values to the, to the party is, I think, a really important issue for us to continue to work on. And I think uh, the, the marathon bombing gave us a bunch of examples where that had been done very well. So I think that was one of the strengths. Uh, we had another question from this microphone. Um, I had the opportunity um, a while ago to hear an FBI um, negotiator speak about could, Waco. Could you tell us who you are, please? Oh, my name is Kathy Vabool. Um, so I, I had an opportunity to hear an um, FBI negotiator who has worked at Waco. And he sp spoke about the conflicting um, aspects of law <coughs> enforcement, tactical versus negotiation, and how that played out in creating potentially some problems in that. that, that. So I know there's been some discussion, and I know Chief Davis has, uh, retired Chief Davis has uh, spoken about this, about information sharing. So I'm wondering what gets in the way of information sharing, hmm. and <coughs> what can you do to fight that? How, why does it happen, and how can you fight it? Hmm. We've emphasized how important it is for these agencies to work together, and yet it's difficult to do for a variety of reasons. I want to stress that um, Information sharing tactically was no problem through this whole event. Um, fr from the beginning, everybody that was there shared everything that they had immediately. Um, and to the point where at the boat, uh, Ed DeVoe and I um, were standing next to one of the armored personnel carriers, um, and the hostage rescue team was running the, uh, the encounter with the suspect. But before they did anything, they came to us and they said, it's our plan to deploy flashbangs, three of them. Do you feel that's all right? Is there something else you would like to have happen here? So there was no lack of information, no lack of coordination among the, the, the people tactically involved in this whole week-long uh, event. Uh, there was a question asked uh, of me by Congress under oath uh, where I, uh, I was asked if we knew about the suspect beforehand, and my answer was no, we did not. Uh, now, there were a lot of reasons for that. Um, and a lot of it's got to do with the fact that, that, that intelligence gathering is like drinking from a fire hose. There is enormous <laughs> amounts of information that is being processed every day by, by analysts across the, all the, the whole government enterprise. And in, in, in the corners or recess, recesses of all of those systems, you might find something where people look at it and they go, ha, if we had only known that, it would have made all the difference in the world. And that's what happened here. That, that, that's what this is about. It's about being able to process the information um, and, and also the propensity for some, some agencies, especially in the middle of the agency, to, 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 to kind of push and pull with information. That's a small, small problem compared to the larger uh, exercise that occurred here. And quite frankly, I think the FBI's done an incredible job of correcting that already. Go to this microphone there. My name is Linda Chadwick, and I'm just a neighbor. Um, but my question is, yesterday, um, when the, you had the incident with the man running down the street toward the finish line in the black getup, and the two backpacks that were left there, when you saw that happen, and I'm not sure how, who saw it or when, but did it sort of just fall right in your plan as to how you approached <laughs> it? You know, you've done so much thinking about all of this stuff, so was it, Easy? I don't think it can ever be easy, but did you sort of just know uh, backpacks, bomb squad? Right. There's a, pro there's, a pro there's a protocol in place, and all the officers who are out there um, understand what that protocol is. But uh, I was asked earlier today if, <coughs> excuse me, if the police should have reacted quicker to that. 
So, I mean, it's not against the law for a man to dress like a woman. And we see it frequently in, in Boston. And so, <laughs> so, you know, everybody says, well, he had the backpack and he you know, was clearly intent on doing something. It's not the intent that you can gauge as a police officer on the scene. It's the action. And, and that's what you're looking for. And so when his action got to the, to the point of becoming too bizarre to allow to occur, or, or to allow him to get close to that uh, small memorial uh, uh, ceremony that was still going on, they reacted quickly and appropriately. And I, and I, I think that's all you can ask for. Uh, we, we, we live in, a, in a, uh, an interesting world that uh, you, you just can't arrest everybody that uh, looks different. And I, he was, I guess he, apparently he's a, a Mass College of Arts student, and when he was arraigned today, he said that the, his, the performance just got the better of him which oh, I think on, is Secretary. probably one of the grossest <laughs> understatements <laughs> <laughs> following the last year. But here's, what, here's something that people don't know. People have been leaving things laying around since last year at a rate that is just alarming. So we've been doing this. We have been responding to the left backpack. That someone um, stuck an empty pressure cooker underneath a car in a garage many months ago. Now, probably, somehow, they stole the pressure cooker from Target or someplace else and left it there. But it didn't have anything in it. There was no reason for us to think that it was going to be used for anything. But we live, the new normal is that we live in a day and age where you can't just say, I'll put this down and come back and get it later. And, and people should expect this because it happens in the airport. Don't put something down and walk away or leave it next to someone who doesn't know who you are or what it is. It's just no longer acceptable. So while this had more flair to it, <laughs> the leaving of the other backpack was full of cameras left by a media crew. So someone at some media outlet somewhere is out probably hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment, and they just, they should know better than anybody else, and they left it. So we, we have been responding to these. They have become very routine, and as we know, the overwhelming majority of them are nothing. That doesn't change the fact that you go in expecting that it is something. But just to follow up on this question, because I think it's an important issue, it comes back to this issue about balance. How do we react to this? Uh, the hypervigilance that we appropriately feel like we need to have about packages and so on, also in effect makes us vulnerable to somebody who's a prankster or just a little unstable or who uh, on a lark wonders if they can disrupt something. And so the question is, are, if that happened on Monday, would we stop the race? Would we wait until bomb dogs have had a chance to have a look at the package before we stop the race? Or how would, how would we, now, obviously that's a too specific and tactical question, but, the, but, but how, do we, how do we maintain perspective on what is really a threat and not uh, play into the hands of people who would like to disrupt things uh, by being willing to be disrupted by almost anything that seems out of place? Well, because you can't stop them from you know, you can, you can certainly have, keep them from certain areas, but you are always going to, media, especially media attention, draws this out in people. Um, all they're thinking about is if I do this, I, you know, I'll get famous, or someone will notice mm. me, or, um, and then you have a fair number of people with emotional and mental problems that simply just, um, you know, sort of make their way onto the national stage uh, through events like this. But I think we always try to minimize the disruption to an event or the public, but we are going to assume that that thing could be a threat. And as we gain, and we try to gain information as quickly as possible, as we gain information that 
detracts from that conclusion, right. then you know, we're able to sort of take action. But we have asked the public, if you see something, say something. We've asked them to report suspicious packages. Nobody wants to walk by something that they think ought not to be there. Don't, they don't make the phone call and something terrible happens. They don't want to live with that. So they report it. We're always looking for that balance, but we, we prefer to err on the side of caution even if it causes inconvenience, however temporary. Well, I think this is the great challenge because we have to err on the side of great caution, but on the other hand, the overwhelming presumption should actually be that it's probably harmless because it's not just 99.9% .9 of the packages, it's a much bigger fraction than that uh, have turned out, you know, the things people just left by mistake or whatever else. Uh, let's turn uh, to the microphone on the right. Hi, my name's Anthea Brady. Uh, my question is sort of in thinking forward or for future events. Um, I think we're very lucky last year with Boston to have a medical tent and emergency personnel and uh, just a huge number of police officers on the scene. How do you deal with that in a situation where you don't have that mm. kind of response? Uh, you're not within you know, a stone's throw of five or six different hospitals who can specialize in um, all of the great work that they did last year. That is one of the things that we have learned and so we have made sure, um, without going into too much detail, that you provide those resources to the areas that don't have them, whether as um, Tom mentioned, it's um, a, a better equipped and better resourced medical tent whether it's uh, working with DPH and the, whatever hospitals or um, medical treatment centers are in that area to increase their resources so that they are able to um, accept um, you know, any injured or any casualties along the way. I mean, Tom, I know, has spent um, a great deal of time on this in particular, on the hospital aspect of it um, in particular to shore up those resources. So I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to defer to you on more the security. <laughs> Well, uh, uh, it certainly is a very important issue, and as my father used to say to me, luck is frequently the residue of design. And a lot of that good luck last year has come from many years, both of work by my colleagues at the Boston Athletic Association and collaboration with all of the medical institutions and public safety agencies that own the, the ambulances, the assets by which people get moved around. But from last year, of course, one asks precisely the question that you asked, and we work on it yet further. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna turn it in just a second to our last uh, question uh, from the microphone up, up here. But just on this, on this point, this is actually an excellent question. In the work that we did, we observed that there were three different categories of things that happened in Boston last year that contributed to the good outcomes, uh, as good as we got. Uh, the first is a set of things which are unique to Boston, like the fact that you have eight trauma, level one trauma centers within a couple of miles of, and that they're spread out. They're not all in one direction from the site. So you can send people, victims, uh, survivors in various different directions. A second thing is a set of things which just happen to be true at that moment. Uh, so for example, there was a shift change going on in the hospitals at the time of the bombing, which meant that you were double staffed. Uh, that was just a unique feature of the moment. You can't replicate that. Other places can't get eight level one trauma centers and we couldn't get lucky enough again to be doing a sh during a shift change if we had an event in Boston. But the third thing was a set of things that you can replicate that Boston has systematically built and that other people can do too. And it's the structures that these people were talking about throughout our discussion here. It's the incident management, it's the fact that these people all knew each other, it's the fact that they had practiced in every fixed event ahead of time. That was the backbone and that is what guarantees that you can do as well as you can reasonably do. 
Now, not everybody can do the same level because they don't, we don't have the same resources. But, you, but the question for us is, can you do as well as you could reasonably be expected to do? And the answer to the, the way to do that is to get yourself organized ahead of time, as these folks had, had taken the effort uh, to, to, to do. And part of, uh, part of resilience in, our, in ourselves and our community is the fact that we go through experiences and we get stronger afterwards. And so one of the benefits of living in uh, Boston, Massachusetts, and New England is we've been very successful with a number of events. I mean, just think of our sports teams and all the national events we've had around our sports teams brings us all together regularly to talk about it. Not just the Boston mm -hmm. Athletic Association's marathon, which is historic and the longest running one ever, but also the fact that we have all these events. And even though we focus a lot on huge hurricanes that hit the south and the coast down there, we've had our share of natural disasters around here over the last 5, 10, 15 years that again has brought us together for responses. And as I said earlier, every event is novel and has something different to it and a little different twist. But we are growing stronger every time. We're working together more. We're growing more confidence in our leadership. And, and even though we don't know and we can't predict what the next big event is and, and where, it's gonna, where it's gonna go, we have a lot of confidence, we have a lot of resilience in each other and ourselves that we can be able to work through these issues and respond and, and support our leadership. Our leadership in Massachusetts, we're very fortunate from the, from the mayors and the community leaders we have uh, all the way up through our uh, secretaries and our, and our governor. It's, it's pretty special to be here in Massachusetts. Let's go to our last question, and then I'm also going to ask the panelists if they'd like to each make a short benedictory remark. Please. Hi, my name is Peter. Thank you so much uh, for being here. I'm actually in the physics department. And uh, one of the things that was really striking as just a citizen sitting through this is after the suspect was caught, there was a spontaneous outpouring of support on the part of the general citizenry, and in particular, basically pushing toward midnight. As far as I understood, there were thousands upon thousands of relatively sober college students who were effectively cheering the police on in a semi-uncontrolled, self-policed riot. So, I, but, but if you think about this, you know, I was there at the riots, the real, real riots after the Red Sox clinched and the poor girl got shot. And, and I think what's interesting in say 10 years or so that the relationship between the perception of the young and the, the symbols of authority in the police more or less did a 180, right? Now you, instead of looking at police as the deliverers of oppression, of the constraints on our freedom, here they are as the saviors and the guarantee of our security and you know, our freedom in a way. And, and I was wondering if you guys saw sort of any more global change in the attitude mm. of the citizen vis-a-vis -vis the police and if there were you know, sort of anything you could observe in the last year. That's a great question for us, Dan Dunn. That's a great question, Dan Dunn. I've seen an increase in trust, um, which has been enormously rewarding. I saw you know, what you saw that night and I thought it was absolutely remarkable. And part of it I, I thought we're very fortunate in this country um, that with the uh, exception of 9-11 um, you know, and Pearl Harbor, we, we don't get attacked on our own soil. It's mm -hmm. not something we're used to. There are countries that are very accustomed to being attacked on their own soil. And so it happens with us so rarely that when people feel, I think, that they have been delivered from that fear, I mean, I, I can't say this enough. We live with such a level of freedom that other people in other parts of this world don't know. And it's, all, you know, a fish doesn't know it's in water, so we don't really think about it all the time. Hmm. But it is, it is remarkable, the level of um, fearlessness 
that we have the luxury of enjoying in this country. And when, when a single, this was two people. I mean, we knew pretty early on that, you know, relatively, that it was just these two. The fear that that struck in people, that this was, you know, happening on our soil and they were identifiable people, I, I, I can't articulate um, uh, what that meant. And so when there was this resolution or seeming resolution to it, I don't think the investigation stopped by any stretch of the imagination, people felt delivered. That's what I saw in all of those mm. people cheering. I, I was absolutely floored by it that it happened. Um, but that sense of relief, that palpable, that was really something. I agree with you. And I think that since then, we've gotten an outpouring from people saying, I, I wasn't happy that you told me to stay in my house, but I know why. We got a ton of emails as it was going on, trust me. <laughs> uh, people want to go get milk and bread. They really want to have French toast when you tell them to stay in their houses. It's kind of <laughs> weird. But, um, but I know why you asked us to do it, and I am grateful that that you asked us to do it and that we did it. And so um, we're very pleased by that reaction, but we will always take that in measure. We won't take it for granted that we can just tell people to stay in their houses next time and they'll feel the same way about it. Right. Any other reactions on the panel on the sub subject? Uh, there was a similar experience uh, less than a year before um, when the military took out bin Laden. Um, I, was, I was called out because of the protests or celebrations, I guess you'd call them, that were breaking out across all the student areas in Boston. And uh, I remember standing on Boston Common with one of my command officers saying, did you ever think you'd see anything like this? They're, they're actually happy that uh, the, the government did something. Uh, very different from when I was in college. But, um, but I, I think that um, this issue of terrorism is a very real threat to people. People have, as, as, as Andrew said, the people feel this personally. And, and I think that that's what, what was driving this, both with bin Laden and, and um, in, the, in the subsequent uh, celebration. The perception for a, a lot of us, and certainly us at the BAA, was that this was not an attack on a race or on the Boston Marathon. It was an attack on Boston. It was an attack on freedom, on a way of life. And everybody reacted that way. And they were more than ready to celebrate those who responded. Yes, as Big, po Big Poppy reminded us, this is our freaking city, <laughs> uh, and, and that's how it felt. Well, let me ask uh, each of the panelists if they'd just like to say one uh, final uh, observation to us. Oh, I'm sorry. Apparently <laughs> not. <laughs> no. I'm sorry, I didn't realize it. Just thank you for the work that you've done in putting this together and in pointing out those issues that need to be worked on. We, there's a lot of things that we can do to improve the systems. Uh, as good as this was, uh, it would have been nice to prevent it. And um, absent preventing it, uh, some of the things that, that you found uh, really need to be corrected quickly. So we have a lot of work to do. For, for all of us, to all of you, keep thinking about it. There is nothing more valuable than having somebody hold up a mirror so that you see what you did and then help you think about how you could do it a little better. These exercises are wonderful. And we should be very proud of that. And we, you know, I thank everyone in this audience. I thank you for putting this together, Dutch. I particularly thank the members of the military that uh, are in this audience. But we should um, continue to be aspirational, as we were talking about earlier, and improve on things. We take a great deal of pride in working hard not to um, disappoint you in your notions of what it, living in a democracy means. So we work hard at that.
And I'd like to echo that too. I mean, we really do work hard at it. And I know when I, uh, I very proudly put on the uniform and represent all that the military is, uh, there's sometimes a dark side to that, that uh, I don't want to say that uh, we're coming in and taking over, but on the other side, there's a good part of that because we have a tremendous amount of experience and things we can do to help our community. And as we, as we uh, proudly uh, walk forward into our own communities where we grow and live, we, uh, we are proud of our service that we can provide to not only every citizen that lives here and every citizen in our community, but also to these, uh, you know, to our leadership that's sitting here right next to me as, uh, as we step forward. But uh, we can always, uh, as to echo what uh, Commissioner Davis said, we can always do this better. And I, uh, we all have an open mind, uh, particularly in the National Guard, about where, when, and how can we do this better and uh, make it better for all of us. Because as I started out, my kids grew up in this community, my lovely wife sitting here is part of this community, and the two of us are in this together. Thank you. Well, as uh, inspired by what you all just said, uh, let me say uh, that for our part at the Kennedy School, uh, we will continue to ask questions, and we hope that those questions will be received by the people who honorably serve on our behalf every day and who get less thanks than they deserve uh, for all of the work that they do. Uh, we'll take those questions not as critical, but as curious and as intended to help us think about how we can continue to improve. Because as Secretary Cabral said, uh, we all aspire to this, and uh, I think at our best, we can do even better uh, together. So that is always our hope. Uh, we're often asked here who our heroes are, and you know, because we get to see a lot of different things and we talk about a lot of different things. My heroes are in this room. My heroes are the people who go out every day and do this kind of work at risk and without much thanks, and who try at their very best to advance all of our national values and goals, who help us to balance liberty and security. Uh, a, a complicated set of issues as we have discussed them tonight. So let's hope that part of the rising trust in the police and in other uh, institutions that were on display here is in part due to a rising level of performance, that we are holding those values dear, uh, that during the Occupy movement, police chiefs are reading the Constitution to their officers before they send them out uh, to, to remind us uh, this is what we are trying to do. So I want to thank all of you for being here tonight. I, I hope you'll uh, uh, join me in thanking our extraordinary panel for their very thoughtful reflections about all this, and I hope we can go forward with Godspeed and uh, God Save the Republic and the Boston Marathon. Thank you.